everybody and welcome yet again to another episode of the Rodeo on the Horn podcast. My name as always Donovan. I'm joined by my lovely, fantastic, fabulous co-host Ryan. RK, what's going on dude? How's your day? You know, a pretty good day uh, for me today. Got my car oil changed. That was a huge highlight. You know, anytime you can you can recharge up your oil in your car and drive safely in the winter. Great, great day for me. But no, other than that, you know, just kind of getting ready for some more playoff hockey this upcoming weekend. Good weekend for us uh, over here at Colgate. Stressful weekend. Wow, it was a tight best at three series for the Raiders, but got it done over the Princeton Tigers over the weekend. So that felt good. Really busy weekend for me, but wouldn't want it any other way. A fun time of year so doing really good yeah you'll take it obviously the colgate women's ice hockey win streak has been broken they were on a nice little heater going into the playoffs however you take them how they come best of three victory we we will oral with it who cares obviously yeah, it uh, was stressful it really was but we made it through yeah obviously anybody who's listening if you want to watch you want to tune in um you know they're going to new haven 6 30 p.m on friday march the 3rd so you know tune in obviously support Support the team. I support the team when I can. You know, obviously RK's at every game. So you're by if you support the team, you're supporting us. Remember that. Yeah, I'm biased, but hey, we're pretty fun to watch. I will say. So give us a check. Absolutely, I enjoy hockey in general. So you know, obviously, I was going to enjoy it. But what I have enjoyed a lot, just a segue here, is the NHL build up to the trade deadline this year has been much more bizarre than you would have expected. Maybe I think like we've seen already. If you were coming into this off season, like last last year, you would have said, okay, like there's obviously some some legitimate targets. There's guys that you know are going to be available. Timo Meyer is one of them. We'll talk about that in a second. But I didn't think that we would have such a a wide ranging group of trades coming into this. We've already discussed last week, but I guess we can start off here with what ended up being the biggest blockbuster until the Timo Meyer trade uh, starting off this week. It looked like. Obviously, the Capitals, you know, they have not had the greatest year, and they decided they were going to make a a business decision and ship off Dmitry Orlov, who they could not resign or were not willing to give uh, the dollar amount that he was looking for, and Garnet Hathaway to the already insane Boston Bruins for Craig Smith, a first and a fifth in 2023, a second in 2025, and a third in 2024. So four in return for Hathaway and Orlov, they got Smith, a first, second, third, and a fifth. First off, RK, just in general, like the rich get richer in this situation, and it makes total sense, correct? Yeah, it does. Boston, you know, obviously having a dominant season so far, really just, you know, taking out everybody uh, in their way, in their path, even doing it in the Eastern Conference, which has been, you know, significantly the better conference between the East and West this year. But I really think that this absolutely just loads up their decor, which was already so strong, adding to guys like Brandon Carlo, Hampus Lindholm, Charlie McAvoy to throw Dmitry Orlov into that top four, uh, you know, pretty much puts you in, in kind of that top category of uh, of top four D uh in the nhl so really like that move from a bruins perspective makes sense to buy makes sense to trade out a first round pick in this situation you know you're able to have a little bit of retained cap uh you know with orlov to help you out a little bit still a, a you know unrestricted free agent at the end of the year as is hathaway as well so uh you know really just kind of going all in this year are the bruins and uh, i think it's for good reason they've been really good and uh makes sense to be aggressive and uh you know even for a guy like garnet hathaway you know he probably slots in and definitely in your bottom six, maybe even on your fourth line, just adds to some of the insane depth that the Bruins have. And, uh, you know, they're a force to be reckoned with. They were before this trade. And uh, this may be the move that, you know, could potentially put them over the top. 
Yeah, it looks like Hathaway will be slotting in on our fourth line uh, with Nosek and Greer, with, which makes Garnet Hathaway one of the better fourth liners in the National Hockey League, yeah, without no a doubt. doubt. Um, you know, obviously there will be, it'll be interesting to see how the third line produces with Felino and Coyle losing Smith, adding Trent Frederick there. So, you know, maybe, maybe they've got some chemistry. I'm sure they've played together quite a lot this year already. So it's not a big deal. And as mentioned before, uh, Orlov and McAvoy have been, you know, practicing together. It looks like that's going to be a long-term pairing as Lindholm and Carlo, which is just insane in, in all reality with how the Bruins have played this year. Um, I don't anticipate that being a long-term thing, I don't anticipate them keeping either of these guys, maybe. I, I would say that it's uh, at least unlikely that they hold on to Garnet Hathaway. I think Dimitri Orlov would be a real battle, too, given the fact that David Pasternak's a UFA. But we've talked about this. We kind of disagree a little bit on the whole premise of, oh, teams should be trading first-rounders. But we'll definitely both agree the Boston Bruins, they, they are very clearly the favorite to win it all this year, correct? Like at this point, after that move, we'll see what happens with the deadline. You know, there, there's still some some more to come probably, but the Bruins have to be number one, right? Yeah, I think just evaluating what we've seen so far this year through, you know, roughly 60 games, uh, you know, roughly kind of three quarters of the way through the season for the Bruins to be, you know, nine points ahead of the second uh, place team in the NHL with the Carolina Hurricanes. I mean, it's just been a, a sensational year for them. Uh, you know, their goaltending has been great. Uh, their forward core has been consistently producing with depth. Uh, and we just touched on, you know, that D, which, you know, continues to get better with Dmitry Orlov. So, you know, they're a force to be reckoned with. It, it's going to be a tall task. You know, there's been a little bit of a stretch here where you know the team that ends up winning the president's trophy hasn't won the stanley cup uh in about a decade the 2013 blackhawks which was even that was a, a lockout year a shortened year so uh kind of a little stretch that obviously the bruins look to change but uh you know this is the type of move that you know could potentially put them uh like i said just in that over the top category where uh you know they already have a great team let's just uh as you said earlier donnie the rich get richer i really like the move for boston yeah it's really interesting uh, i don't think anybody was really uh, nobody was waiting on them to make a move. You kind of knew they were. It was going to happen at some point. You kind of knew they were going to make a defensive addition. But the Hathaway, it's a little. It's interesting to me. I, I like the little added added value on top of Orlov because I think had they just done this with Orlov, it would have been a fair deal probably anyway. Um, I guess we could shift over to what ended up being even bigger than the Mitrola trade. Uh, Timo Meyer, as was rumored for what seemed like months, it was definitely probably weeks, but you know, it seemed like it's been the entire season uh, to New Jersey, along with Scott Harrington and a couple of lesser prospects for Shakir Mukmadulin, who was a former first round pick just a couple years ago. Nikita Okachik, who was a, a mid round pick. I think it was a second, a couple years ago, Fabian Zetterlund, who's currently playing on the devils uh, should end up slotting into the Sharks second or third line, assuming, um, you know, David Quinn decides to coach as he should. Uh, plus, a first rounder and then a conditional second that turned into a first if Timo Meyer plays 50% of the games with the Devils and the Devils make the Eastern Conference Finals either this year or next year. First off, you know, just as a Rangers fan, no surprise at all, no shock at all. I do, however, think that San Jose, with a brand new GM, I think this is really just like a case study and why you need to have your GM throughout the entire off season and you need to hire him as soon as the season ends or very close to when the, the prior season ends. Uh, it, it's a little bit interesting to me, and I, I'm sure you you have some takes on this. You, uh, he was hired in July. He was hired early July. This is like right smack dab in the middle of when things are happening. It, it, it seemed to me like maybe they had, like Greer was kind of just getting acclimated early on, and maybe this was like, I wouldn't call it a mistake necessarily, but I do think it's very underwhelming to to come out of this without at least a legitimate can't miss prospect. And Mukabadulin, just in my 
my perspective, not anywhere close to a guarantee. Okachek, not anywhere close to a guarantee. Zetterlin's the only one playing on the team right now. Six goals in 50-ish games this year. Not exactly what you're looking for out of a 23-year-old, I would say, especially a guy who's been playing in their top nine. Um, but just in general, like, there, there are some assets there. It's not the worst deal Greer could have made, but I definitely think just in general, like the fact that he was hired so late in the off season last year, he hasn't even had the job for a full year. And this is his first really major move. And I think Sharks fans are probably not very thrilled with the overall outcome. Yeah, I agree. I thought the return was a little underwhelming and, you know, a lot of it was the reasons you pointed out, you know, the devils, I think, organizationally have among the strongest you know young talent groups you know when you talk about players that are under the age of say 23 or 24 obviously a lot of those players that you know the Sharks would be looking for in a rebuild I thought it was interesting to me that you know you mentioned Makamadoulin and you know former first round pick good prospect no issues really with that one but to be going after Zetterland and uh, you know, Andreas Janssen as well. It's like, do they need the roster players right now? Like, you know, yeah, logically you do need to fill a spot of what Timo Meyer is. And I like what Zetterling can offer you in terms of, you know, a depth forward. But uh, I think kind of the big picture is like, you're training a bona fide first line player on just about any team. Uh, a guy who is an RFA still has, uh, you know, not necessarily unrestricted free agent rights at the end of this year. Uh, you retain some of his cap, you know, to not come away with a guy like Alexander Holtz or Simon Nemich or Luke Hughes, which I'm sure they asked for and the Devils obviously value very highly. I think it is a disappointment for the San Jose Sharks. And, you know, I don't necessarily know if it is on, you know, the off season, the late off season. Maybe it's kind of more on your scouting staff to, you know, make sure it's like, hey, if we're talking to the Devils in a team of Meyer trade, we got to make sure we land, you know, one of these, uh, you know, top prospects back. I think Alex Holtz is, is really kind of of a prime example like you got to at least get Alex Holtz back uh in a deal like that at least in my opinion seemed like the Sharks you know they got the first round pick they got a conditional second you know still getting some future assets got a lot of quantity but uh I wonder in a in a deal involving Team Meyer do you want kind of that higher you know ceiling quality prospect uh more so than just kind of a plethora of assets yeah I definitely agree with you and I also think just it's very weird to see where the Sharks have went, given the fact that Doug Wilson in March of last year gave a what I would it's going to be realistically a, a very, very brutal contract to try to build around in Thomas Hurdle. Um, Hurdle's a very good player. You know, he goes out there, he's going to give you a great production every night. Like he watched his averaging almost a point per game this year, 48, 57 on the Sharks is not that bad at all. But, you know, giving him an eight year deal and then Couture is on a five year deal. Like if you're not getting the top tier prospect, as you said, what's the point of even doing that? Why don't you just circle back in the offseason? You've got Eric Carlson, who's having the greatest defenseman year that we've had out of Eric Carlson in his career, which is crazy because this is a guy that's looked at as a guaranteed no doubter Hall of Famer when it's all said and done like maybe the Sharks should have been a little bit more focused on like I don't know getting a goaltender in the offseason or something trying to make their team a little bit better because in reality the Sharks team is bad but they're not like respectfully RK they're not Blackhawks bad we're not talking about a team that is truly roster wise the, the abysmal horrible team so it does lead me to believe a little bit like maybe um, I'm surprised to see that they didn't end up with a legitimate prospect, but maybe that's just the market. I still think that it's really just, it's very bizarre. The whole last year, literally Doug Wilson was running the show, giving out extensions, left out of nowhere. Greer takes over two days before the draft. Like there's gotta be some sort of disconnect there in the organization, whether like directional, um, cause it's clear, like you don't give out an eight year deal with eight, eight, eight by 8.2 deal to Tomas Hurdle if you're not expecting to be a winning team in the next couple of years. So it really just the Sharks seem like 
directionless with a direction. If, if there's ever been a team that's directionless with a, a clear tanking direction, it's them. Yeah, it's a weird situation they have with their roster, especially the fact that, you know, their top two centers, Hurdle and Couture, both signed for at least five more years and, you know, approaching their early 30s in the case of Hurdle and Couture already there. So it's like, you know, in theory, when you look at that from a roster standpoint, it's like you, you should be competing for a playoff spot so that they've completely underwhelmed, uh, but not quite willing to rebuild. You know, they're acquiring, you know, a, a roster player back and sure you get the prospect in Makamadulin too in the draft picks, but I just kind of, I'm kind of shaking my head a little bit. I think that their better option, uh, you know, rather than taking this deal um, would probably be um, to just, you know, end up re-signing Meyer yourself uh, at that point is probably what uh, what I would have suggested for the Sharks. But, uh, you know, that's obviously the direction they go with, and I like it a lot for New Jersey. Yeah, it's interesting. Obviously, Greer yesterday said it's not a full-on rebuild, so uh, I guess, you know, the direction that they're in is we're going we're gonna to lose and win and, and probably end up having a top seven pick for the next couple of years unintentionally maybe um but it'll be interesting we'll definitely see it seems like the devils won this one fairly easily at this point we'll see how the picks turn out obviously two first rounders potentially uh it makes it a little bit more exciting maybe but uh, i guess from here we can move on to what ended up being the most surprising trade of the night last night not timo meyer being moved but a taylor Janot trade to the Tampa Bay lightning for Calfoot. A first in 2025, a second in 2024, and a third, fourth, and a fifth in 2023. So we're talking Cal Foot. Uh, he's 23 now, I believe, uh, with a first, second, third, fourth, and a fifth for Taylor Janot, who is having uh, as close to a regression year as possible, maybe. Last year, it felt like, at the very least, you were getting a solid uh, depth scorer, somebody that's going to go out there and bang home goals, even strength primarily. He's going to get to the net and get these uh, these juicy goals. Instead, this year, he went from having 24 goals last year in 81 games. He got 5 and 56, which is a huge, huge drop-off. Uh, went from shooting 19.4% to 5.7%. So you kind of assume that his, his production is probably somewhere in the middle of those two numbers. But like the return is ridiculous, is it not? Yeah, I think so. And, uh, you know, I think the Lightning, you always kind of look at their moves around deadline time and you're like, oh, either. it always seems like they got a little different formula in terms of who they're going after and whatnot. Uh, you know, you look at recent years when they trade for guys like Brandon Hagel or last year as well, Nicholas Paul. Like, they just kind of always make these moves. You're like, okay, that's kind of an interesting little forward. Let's see how he fits. But I'm not sure Tanner Janot necessarily is the guy I'd be willing to trade as many assets as they did give up. Uh, also still a restricted free agent at the end of this year. You don't necessarily get the benefit of, you know, keeping him on a cheap cap hit you know guaranteed you know for a couple more seasons that kind of cost control element that we saw in the Brandon Hagel trade for example so I, I was definitely surprised by it you know I, I'm not necessarily sure uh you know why the the price was so high on Tanner Janot uh to be honest and and why the or excuse me why the lightning were uh you know kind of willing to pay it but uh you know I guess we'll see as you said you know Janot hasn't necessarily had as much production did score 24 goals you know last season so you, you know that there is some ability there that maybe you channel and uh you know it's it's hard not to kind of put it past a team like tampa bay like if you if there is a team that can be kind of comfortable shelling out picks it's a team that you know year in year out is you know finding themselves in the stanley cup final but uh you know having said that you know you, you look at what they have coming up next three years they do not have a first round pick next two years do not have a second round pick and this year as well do not have a third fourth or fifth as a result of this deal so you're giving up a lot of future assets you know teams are, are willing to do that if you have your peak you have your little window like go try to maximize it especially in a situation, again, like Tampa Bay's, where they've proven they can have that success, sustained success in the postseason. But, uh, you know, that the, the Blackhawks obviously saw it when, when 
they had their, you know, super aggressive push and, and it's a hard, hard fall. But, uh, you know, Tampa Bay, obviously they understand that they're OK with that. Uh, if they can get themselves, you know, one more cup and say the next two or three years, they won't care at all about, you know, not having a first round pick. Yeah. And, and even, you know, Julian Breezebois came out and said, uh, you're going to have to overpay for these players is how you get the player. The player goes to the highest bidder for us to acquire the player. We had to make it worth their while. Uh, it came out afterwards. They were asking for at least two first round picks for Tanner Janelle, which is, is really interesting because I think that he kind of just came out of nowhere and turned into a very solid uh, producer last year. Uh, a guy that I don't think that even like looking back at scouting reports, because I saw a lot of the Tanner Janelle scouting reports posted last night. Um, not a whole lot of people were really like counting on this guy to be like a top six or, or middle six forward. They were saying, oh, maybe he makes it. He's a high effort, high energy player, but um, it remains to be seen. You, it's hard to doubt the Tampa Bay Lightning, as mentioned, every single time we talk about the Tampa Bay Lightning. It's like, ah, it's going to work out for them probably. And and every time we talk about the Tampa Bay Lightning on this podcast, it does end up working out for them in, in most case scenarios. So um, really interesting. I do think uh, you know, six pieces for one player that's probably not going to be a huge difference maker come cup time is a little bit weird to me. But I just, you know, how, how can you even doubt them after after all of what they've done? Um, and I, again, you you so uh, eloquently reminded me last night that, you know, they didn't win the cups under the prior regime. They won the cups under this current current GM. So maybe he maybe he just knows more than everybody. That's could be it. Yeah, I mean, like if we're if we're questioning the moves, but we're seeing them win in the playoffs, I guess you know that's that's smart strategy from Julian Breezeball. He is big braining it, so yeah, it, it's Tampa. You're you kind of you're like, all right, that's fine. If another team did it, we're probably like calling for the GM's head immediately. <laughs> uh, just being honest, uh, how I see it there, but um, yeah, it, it's Tampa Bay, and you know they obviously know that you know they have a tough road ahead still with you know Tampa or Toronto. You know we know their struggles in the playoffs, but still a you know tough team that that's not easy to knock out, uh, and then obviously Boston, uh, you know, just outside of that. And, you know, you, you get through those gauntlets, you know, you're just in the conference final. You still got eight more games to win. So they understand the grind and, uh, you know, depth is, is always something we harp on Donnie. So, you know, the conceptually it, it makes sense, but I uh, just thought specifically with the player and the assets given up just seemed like a little bit much. Yeah, I guess so. Um, but we did end up seeing a very quick response from those Toronto Maple Leafs this morning with your Chicago Blackhawks making a deal that I'm sure you could not have loved more. Uh, Jake McCabe and Sam Lafferty, uh, no longer Blackhawks, heading to Toronto for a top 10 protected 2025 first, a 2025 second, a Pavel Gogolev, and the, the legend Joey Anderson somehow still finding his way in, in trade. I feel like Joey Anderson's been traded six times now. Just in general, um, I guess NHL GMs and some of the scouts have seen a lot more out of Jake McCabe than just like the normal fan has, because most people were, were sitting here like, ah, you know, this guy is not very good. This is probably a third pairing defenseman for them to give up that those type of assets, plus Sam Lafferty, who is almost assuredly a fourth liner on the Toronto Maple Leafs. A little bit much, maybe feels a little bit excessive. Yeah, I thought so too. I think the Blackhawks really benefited from an extremely, extremely, you know, weak decor of, of prospects available. You know, we saw the Dmitry Orlov trade, but that was something that Washington put out a notice to all teams and they're like, hey, Dmitry Orlov's available. And Boston's like, yes, get me in on that because the rest of the crop for, you know, available defensemen was not strong. So I think that was just right place, right time for the Blackhawks. We know defensemen, you know, historically kind of increase in value around deadline time. There's not a team in the NHL that, you know, wouldn't take another third pair D that, you know, can either 
eat up minutes for him uh, at this point of the year. So that'll obviously be something that helps Toronto again, you know, assets, uh, you know, I always try to, uh, you know, see what Toronto's doing to get Ryan O'Reilly and finish it up by getting another D and, and depth forward. I think Kyle Dubas is, you know, doing his due diligence to say, yep, we've got scoring. That's for sure. But to win in the playoffs, we need to make sure that, uh, you know, we're keeping the puck out of the net as much as we're putting it in. So, uh, you know, the, the price is high. I, I like the return from a Blackhawks standpoint for sure to be able to get a first and second round pick as well as, you know, you know, maybe we get something out of Joey Anderson, you know, we'll, we'll see if we can give him an, an opportunity. He'll certainly get that in Chicago, but uh, I didn't see necessarily too much in McCabe or Lafferty where, you know, I'm upset that they got traded. Uh, I think it's a really nice trade for, for Kyle Davidson and the Blackhawks here. Yeah, I definitely agree. It looks like McCabe's probably going to slot in on their second pairing to start off, but I don't anticipate that being a long-term thing. I would think uh, you have to assume, you know, you don't really want a, a Giordano McCabe pairing out there against the Tampa Bay Lightning second line, for example, probably not the best, you know, may, maybe, uh, maybe stay away from that one, but regardless, uh, seem, seems pretty good. Blackhawks, obviously, you know, doing their thing. Uh, Blackhawks, uh, somebody posted earlier the, the cat friendly page with all their picks. And let me tell you, it's looking, it's looking real nice. It's looking real pretty, especially given the fact that uh, looking back, you know, obviously the brain cat trade was not ideal. They didn't get the assets they were looking for long-term. I think, you know, both you and I were kind of anticipating that they would have something more out of it, but it does look like, you know, obviously you've got, you've got some Ottawa picks uh, second and third, this and next year, uh, the lightning have given you uh, a ton of picks. You've got a Canucks second next year. You've got the Leafs first in three years. The Blackhawks are looking like, it's kind of sort of getting there a little bit in terms of just the potential assets. Yeah. I mean, I think each move that Kyle Davidson makes, like you can just tell how he's just like a very like analytically driven, like purposeful person, you know, like conceptually you want to acquire these future draft picks and trust your scouting staff to go and find these guys and give yourself an opportunity to hit. Uh, and, you know, even if these picks are towards the end of the first round, like you have with Tampa Bay's first, the next two years, and even Toronto's a few years down the line, those can still add up in, in a few years where if you're hitting on these, you know, guys at the end of the first round, maybe they end up being you know a top 10 player overall in the draft and, and you can really make some hay in, in a couple of years when they're on their ELCs and they're coming up and you can develop them so and and for Kyle Davidson in his first full year you know now's the time to do it you've got a terrible team like there's not a lot of pressure on this team to go out and, and fight every single game and, and try to win which they have been doing recently which is kind of wild too but uh, I, I think from that standpoint just going out trying to get some young players overhaul this roster that badly badly needed it doing it early you know in your time as a GM you know you're a establishing a direction you're establishing a process I, I i think i'm very optimistic uh for what kyle davidson can continue to do and uh you know even with the you know moves uh that you touched on with the brinket and even kirby doc you know they they have that clear direction where it's like yeah we're gonna try to continue to develop our players from within draft really well give us the most opportunities to hit and having multiple first round picks having three second round picks as well gives the blackhawks the best opportunity to do that so uh you know from that standpoint i think kyle davidson's doing a nice job and uh, you know, excited to, uh, you know, finally see these guys start to to develop and, and turn it around over the next few years. Yeah, and it does look like there's uh, there's going to be a couple other moves probably out of the Blackhawks. I'm not exactly sure um, whether you're going to see a Connor Murphy trade or something like that, but it does look like Patrick Kane is almost assuredly going to be a Ranger for maybe nothing, a very minimal return yeah. at this point, it seems like, which is uh, the beginning of the year. I think it was a little bit, we would have been saying, oh yeah, it's definite first round pick, probably a prospect too. But I guess, you know, Kane has kind of, he's paid his dues enough to where he can pick uh, where, where he wants to be sent. So you can't be really mad about that. And then you've also got, Max Domi, Andres Athanasiu, you'd expect Athanasiu is probably gone. Uh, Max Domi really loves Chicago, which is, I, I guess, interesting. He's he's kind of just vibing out right now. Uh, how much will he love it after Patrick Kane is gone? Who knows? But um, 
it, it looks like, you know, really from just my perspective as a, as a non-Blackhawks fan, it looks like they're kind of sort of getting there in terms of like tearing it all the way down. Cause it's something we, we mention all the time, like even the, the San Jose Sharks, something that the Sharks have not been able to do and will not be able to do. Probably um, the Blackhawks have finally just decided after the last couple of years of just absolute tomfoolery in the front office, like, Hey, it's time it's done we got it we got to tear it down yeah i i think bringing up the sharks is a really interesting kind of parallel because i think there may be kind of some similarities to the roster that you know kyle davidson took over and the roster that you know greer took over in san jose that's like well there's some pieces but you're you're really not there you, you're really like retooling just simply just does not really seem like an option for me in these situations and kyle davidson took that approach and said all right fire sale let's sell off our assets even some of our young ones and let's start developing this prospect pool and you know the sharks on the other hand you know still having some of their veterans you know seems like they might hold on to carlson which that's certainly a tough trade not uh you know saying they they had to do that by any means but you know the meyer trade to you know go after kind of you know we'll get a few more veterans some ready bodies you know i, I think they kind of could have seen a little bit more long-term approach um which is certainly what i'm seeing from the blackhawks and liking that and i too i just want to mention i think it's worth talking about the patrick kane situation too because as you said you know for so long this year we're like oh patrick kane he's gonna get you know all these assets you know why why is this situation happening but it's really all comes back to his no move clause and that was something that kyle davidson has continued need to reference anytime he's been asked about the Patrick Kane situation it's really up to him it's up to Patrick Kane the Blackhawks don't have the ability to go negotiate with all you know 32 uh 31 other teams rather uh and say hey we've got Patrick Kane on the market this is a you know hall of fame top American you know born player uh you know give us your top prospects and picks you can't do that because Patrick Kane has to then agree to the deal and what he's communicated with the Blackhawks is there's not many landing spots where he is that interesting going in terms of leaving Chicago but the Rangers are you know one of those teams that are certainly on that list so then the Blackhawks you're like okay well now our options are our you know demand here comes down to one team so the Rangers are thinking well we don't need to shell out these top prospects these top picks we're not competing against anybody you know for this player so uh, I think that's a big reason why we have not yet seen King get traded and uh, you know that's kind of been a, a little bit of a, of a tough water situation for the Blackhawks to kind of maneuver around because you also don't want to just trade them away for you know pretty much pennies and uh, you know that that's kind of you know one of the top players in your franchise uh, history as well well so really kind of interesting situation with Kane you know certainly seems like there's a door open where he could end up just remaining a Blackhawk through all of this too uh, I don't think that door is is 100% closed either but um, you know that's where things lie could end up being a Ranger still um, you know by the time we hit deadline time but definitely a really interesting situation like with Kane that uh, you know may not necessarily have been playing out uh, as we thought at the beginning of the year. Yeah, and I do think somebody mentioned this a couple of days ago. It might have been a Mark Lazarus mentioned that, you know, maybe Patrick Kane comes back after the season. You know, he could definitely sign a a team friendly or at least a a reasonable contract, given the fact that a lot, they're going to have to pay somebody outside of Seth Jones. They're not going to have a whole lot of cap on the books. So uh, it would may, maybe there's a reunion. It makes a lot of sense, obviously, like Patrick Kane clearly loves Chicago. If he didn't, the offseason would have been it would have been quick. He would have been gone before the season started. So I do think and I'm sure just before we move on here, you would welcome Patrick came back with open arms in a three, four, four year deal. Uh, not super. He's not getting 10 mil, obviously, but you, you would take him back for sure, right? Yeah, no doubt. And I think there's a little bit difference between, you know, could they, should they have kept, you know, Dabrinkin and Doc? Those are guys they could have continued to develop. They're kind of these young stars. They can kind of be that leadership group for when the next stars come up and, and play with them. Kane, probably a little bit different, you know, area at 34 years of age. Probably not still around when the Hawks are, you know, competing for, a, you know, a championship again. You know, that's still a handful of years away, but, uh, you know, could con definitely continue to contribute in terms of the leadership aspect, you know, 
know, definitely potential. This is the last year of Jonathan Taze. Maybe Kane, you know, gets a nomination for captain of the Blackhawks. That could be something that could be interesting to him, uh, you know, as someone that, you know, now has a family in Chicago and, you know, maybe his priorities aren't necessarily fully on. I'm trying to win the Stanley Cup every year. You know, he's been there and done that. And not to say he's, you know, lost that competitive spark, but, uh, you know, maybe that could be also a factor, you know, going on in Kane's head that, uh, you know, maybe not all others would consider. Yeah, I definitely agree. I think that's spot on. And it will be interesting to see because it's like th- there's not a player, it, especially in Black, Blackhawks history, like there's not a player that I can remember the, the fan base just rallying around more. This guy is probably the greatest Blackhawk of, of all time, if not very, very close to that position. So, mm-hmm. uh, you know, you, you'll take it. You'll take whatever you can get out of him, obviously. And there's no, not a Blackhawks fan out there that's going to be mad at Patrick Kane saying he only wants to go to New York or whatever. It's just, yeah. you, just you just let it happen. It's Every Hawks fan just wants Kane to be happy and have success. If it's with the Hawks, great. If it's with the Rangers, you know, go Rangers really is how we're seeing it. Yeah, I mean, definitely respect there. Uh, next week, I think we're going to have a, a recording Sunday for you as a, a little trade deadline recap. Uh, it's not going to be as exciting as we hoped it would be. Uh, I do think that a lot of the, the moves have happened already, but we will definitely have some NHL talk for you again this weekend. I will make sure to get it up this weekend so everybody can listen during their Sunday night when there's no NFL on. Uh, but first, we got to talk some MLB. Spring training is here. Out of nowhere, it feels like the the and they just always gather the pitchers and catchers get there. And then all of a sudden they're playing baseball a week later. It feels like it's just so quick, Um, but we're not going to talk about spring training that much. We're going to talk more about the rule changes. Now, I think we've discussed a little bit on um, they're having bigger bases. So there's less collisions and there's a little bit more. uh, You would assume that steals go up because the bases are bigger. The base paths, a little bit smaller. Um, Theoretically, you would think more running Um, limits on defensive shifts. Only one player can be anywhere close to the middle of the field. Two players on each side of the field at all times in terms of the infielders. Can't have just random outfielders up front. Can't have infielders in the outfield playing deep, um, which is interesting. I don't think that I don't think it's gonna be something that's going to be too crazy because I still think shifts will be very apparent, just like not as heavily, you know, three guys for Joey Gallo on one side of the infield type deal. But the one thing that we have already seen some issues with, uh, I guess we can talk about the other rules in a second, but the pitch timer, and the, the batter timer is a little bit weird. So the pitch timer, obviously, you know, we're talking about a, a legitimate restriction to how long you have to spend, how long you can spend on the mound, uh, which is something that I, I guess was brought up by guys kind of sort of taking forever on the mound in general. Uh, baseball games being too slow, uh, 15 seconds with the bases empty, the pitcher has to set and throw in 15 seconds with runners on base, 20 seconds. Um, and we, we did see an issue already and literally like the second day of spring training games we had a bottom of the ninth two outs bases loaded game called a strike three because the batter didn't look at the pitcher by halfway through the pitcher pitch clock which is incredibly bizarre but before we get into any of the other rule changes just the pitch clock in general is going to be the one that is most heavily uh, discussed no doubt regardless especially because there are some pitchers that average like double what the pitch clock is already uh, any any issues any thoughts are you confused we're confused i'm confused yeah i'm definitely conflicted on the pitch clock uh you know i think that the mlb you know for years has tried to solve the problem of, of speeding up games and they've tried these obscure things like oh we're gonna limit the amount of mound visits that happen in a game we're gonna cap it at six instead of not having a limit at all and uh you know reducing the time in between innings and just trying to do these little kind of small things that really doesn't speed up the game all that significantly you know like uh, there, there wasn't the issue of games were taking three hours wasn't because there were seven mound visits in a game 
instead of six. You know, I, I think the pitch clock does solve that issue a little bit better. Like, you know, the you know main reason why games are taking so long is, you know, the, the time in between action. And, you know, uh, I, I think a pitch clock does certainly address that issue, which is a good thing. I do think the MLB needed to address their pace of play issue. But in the pitch clock standpoint, then you also have the game standpoint. You know, like you said, there's situations where a hitter is in the ninth inning and getting ready to take an at-bat. And just because they haven't made eye contact with the pitcher, you know, that's it. They're done. They're at-bats over. And, uh, you know, that that's a tough one. That's going to be an adjustment. That's kind of all part of it, uh, you know, in the adjustment period of, of getting used to, you know, the new rule. But I think in the big picture, it makes sense. You know, players and, and coaches may not necessarily like it as much, but I think it's an adjustment that is for the greater, you know, purpose of the game of baseball and, you know, to draw more of an audience. And, uh, you know, sometimes those decisions can be a little unpopular, but uh, I don't think that this rule is something that's too drastic where it'll, you know, totally derail the the quality of play or, uh, you know, totally mess up a pitcher or hitter's flow. Uh, I think it is something that in the big picture will be good for the game of baseball. Yeah, I think so too. It's just a little bit weird given the fact that I think both of I, uh, both you and I have grown up with the sport being essentially the same the entire time. Like not, not a whole lot of changes have been made. And, and I, for one, I'm not huge on, on like, Oh, the games take too long because it doesn't really matter to me how long the games take. I'm just here to watch. Um, obviously, you know, it's baseball is a great background sport. It's really good for you to be doing something else while all the sports on the background. It's going to be interesting. Uh, yeah, other... I think just the other note I was thinking on that is like, could there be a compromise where it's like, all right, we're doing it for the first six innings and then the last be, three innings, it's, it's a little bit it. longer clock. Absolutely. Yeah. That's kind of where think, my head was at. I think that's like almost the perfect medium there is where like late, it's a little bit different. The game is not, it's not the same in the second inning and the eighth inning. It's totally, totally different. A zero, zero game and a five, five game in the eighth inning. Uh, maybe we need to start like uh, maybe modifying this a little bit just to give it a little more leeway late in the game. I a hundred thousand percent agree with you there. Yeah. And I think too, like the rhythm of a starting pitcher and reliever is just a little bit different too. Like a reliever isn't necessarily going in and I'm throwing a hundred pitches. I'm trying to work. I'm trying to throw strikes, you know, get through this outing, you know, relievers can be a little bit more diligent, you know, working around hitters. Okay. I'm going to, you know, try to get this, you know, one, two chase a little bit harder. I, I just think there's a little bit, that's kind of where the game side takes over. Uh, you know, maybe there's a little bit different mindset between starters and relievers and that side. And, uh, you know, the, the inning in which it occurs can definitely be uh, kind of just a, a general benchmark of, you know, how much time should we kind of be allocating for this? Maybe the lead of the game could play an impact, you know, a closer game or a little bit more lenient, uh, you know, than an 11 to two game in the eighth inning, you know, for example. So I think they could kind of play around with the rules a little bit. Uh, you know, this is kind of that trial period. I know they did it in the minor leagues, but um, yeah, it's an interesting one. I, I think it is uh, is overall good, but um, there's definitely going to be people that complain about it. It's baseball and they've been doing things historically for a long time so anytime there's change people have this big uproar but i i actually don't mind this rule uh, as much as some of the, uh, the other things that have happened in baseball over the last few years yeah i definitely agree and just before we move on here do you want to talk about any of the defensive shift limits obviously there are statistics behind all of this so the, the shift uh, apparently having that shift has knocked down the the league-wide batting average 10 points since 2006 and six points in the last decade um so a serious in a serious decrease rather um now four infielders within the outer boundary of the infield infielders cannot switch sides you cannot move your third baseman yada 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 whatever there um and then obviously the, the base is going from 15 inches to 18 inches a little bit bigger would assume that that makes steals um a little bit more common, a little bit easier to steal a base. Uh, any thoughts on these before we move on? 
Yeah, I'm uh, a very pro still. The the base is changing. I got no issue with that. You know, I maybe I don't have enough knowledge in terms of base running strategy, but I got no issue with that. The shift one, I think this one, when it happened, I was very against it. I was very pro shift. I think it's a, just a defensive strategy and managers are smart for doing it. If batting averages are going down, that means where we're deploying our defensive players is working and it's smart and the hitter needs to adjust. But Knowing what the rule is now, I think it is kind of a compromise. You know, it's not fully banning shifts. It's just, you know, the specific locations, you know, like you said, the third baseman going across or three guys on one side of an infield. We're still going to see some shifts. We're still going to see some guys, you know, pretty close to the middle of the diamond on a lot of plays. But I, I think it is actually kind of like a happy medium uh, in terms of that rule. So I've warmed up a little bit to it, but I'm still overall kind of like grumpy. I like the shift. Uh, but, uh, you know, I, I think that, you know, it, it makes sense. And also from a fan perspective, you know, people want to see runs they want to see offense they want to see base hits they don't want to see you know just a, a ground out to you know the the second baseman when it's really the third baseman uh and and it's kind of like what is going on you know a little strange but um yeah that one is, is definitely an interesting one I've, I've warmed up to it a little bit more than maybe even i thought i would when it first came out yeah i did see a baseball analytics twitter guy say that we we may see more outfielders moving into the infield or at least moving closer um, to try to play the advantages, play the strengths of where the batter is, which will be interesting. I think, you know, banning the shift doesn't necessarily mean banning the shift. It just right. means banning the shift as it was previously. And these MLB guys, they will do anything to get a, a leg up. So I'm, I'm sure that we'll see. A yeah, lot maybe of it promotes more strategy. You know, you're a little bit more limited. How are you going to get even more creative to, you know, generate outs? It could be a good thing. And I mean, that's what you've got the coaching staff for. That's what you've got all these analytics and stats people for to figure out exactly where these guys should be. So I, I'm sure we're going to see some very weird setups, um, an outfielder sitting halfway up with all the other outfielders playing deep or a, a shifted over in the outfield and an outfielder staying at the edge of the infield. It's going to be really interesting. Uh, baseball, maybe in a good spot, maybe in a bad spot. Who knows? I guess we'll see in a couple months when the season gets going. Uh, before we get to questions, we have a couple NFL um, and NFL mentions just this is cut season. We're getting towards cut season. Maybe not yet, but within the next couple of weeks, we should see uh, some more roster movement. We saw a couple big, uh, big players cut. Bobby Wagner cut in Los Angeles, kind of expected their cap. Um, they, they they spend so much money on players. It's ridiculous. So kind of expected. But one that I was not necessarily not on my radar was um, former MVP level quarterback Carson Wentz. Uh, after a couple injuries, a bad year in Washington has been cut. I was thinking, and I may be totally off here, I was thinking Eric Bieniemy would be there to try to make Carson Wentz maybe like a, a competitive quarterback. In the, it, it kind of made sense. So, like, cutting him seems to be a little bizarre to me, maybe. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah, it's an interesting one. Uh, you know, a, a couple years in a row now, Wentz has, you know, changed teams, didn't go well in 2020 with the Eagles. They move him to the Colts. Colts didn't like what they saw towards the end of the year. They move him to the Commanders. Commanders didn't like what they saw. They were playing Taylor Heineke over him at certain times this year. Uh, and now Wentz is gone completely, clears about $26 million in cap for them, which obviously that is a big boost. You'll you'll take that over a quarterback that, you know, has a potential to just be sitting on your bench because you're not confident enough in his abilities. But having said that too, Heineke also a free agent. And so the quarterbacks left on this roster are Jake Fromm and Sam Howell. Definitely a, a lot of buzz in commander's land that Sam Howell is going to kind of take over. And I certainly like some of his ability at North Carolina, but not confident that he's ready to, you know, be a full-time starter without any, you know, major hiccups, uh, you know, next season. So it uh, definitely is a tall task for Eric Bieniemy. I assume the commanders may be, uh, you know, interested in some of this veteran QB market, uh, you know, 
uh, to, to kind of combat that. Maybe they bring back Heineke too is another option, but uh, you know, it'll be interesting too, to see where Wentz ends up, uh, you know, could end up being in a backup role. It may be, uh, you know, uh, an attractive backup, but um, you know, may not necessarily get that kind of day one starting opportunity, uh, you know, that he has kind of had over the last few years. He just hasn't played up to that standard, uh, you know, that we saw a few years ago with the Eagles, you know, after the knee injuries and, and the back issues, he certainly has not been the same player in terms of extending plays, breaking the pocket, using his athleticism. He's been a much more limited player. And, uh, you know, that's really hurt him, uh, you know, the last few years. It's been too bad to see how his career has kind of derailed because he was super fun to watch as a member of the Eagles, really enjoyed, uh, you know, some of the seasons that he put forward. But, uh, you know, it's kind of a decision where the commanders are like, he's not worth this value. We have a potential out here and we're going to make it. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense to me just in general on that perspective. It's still it's going to be surprising regardless to see the commanders get rid of the one of the quarterbacks on the roster just in general, but they do have a lot of cap space up to 35 million now. So as you mentioned before, maybe a suitor for a veteran quarterback, although it does seem like said veteran quarterbacks are kind of sort of figuring out where they're going already. It kind of seems like Derek Carr, um, he's been meeting a couple teams. I don't anticipate them really like, would would they, would they be better with like a Baker Mayfield or a Sam Darnold? Probably not. I'm not, I'm not necessarily going to say, you know, Carson Wentz is better than a, a, a Baker Mayfield or Sam Darnold because it really hasn't looked that way. They've, they've all been pretty mediocre the last couple of years, but just in general, like it's so bizarre to see the enemy take that job. And then them like knowing how, useless the quarterback room is currently it's gonna be really interesting obviously they have to compete uh given the eagles are already very set and, and could be very set for a long time with jalen hurts the giants you would assume daniel jones is their long-term quarterback and then obviously the cowboys are paying Dak prescott an absolute boatload of money um the commanders will need to pay somebody some money if they want to compete and it looks like they the commanders are competing right this is a team that's going to be trying to win correct yeah you would uh you you would definitely think you would definitely think yeah, you know, it's you really never know what the commanders. Obviously, they're just they're an interesting team. But what we do have now is a couple of questions. There are also some Eric Jensen questions that I'll add at the end here, real quick. Uh, nothing too crazy, but we do, however, have a very exciting question from Josh. A question that I absolutely love, and his it's more of a discussion. He wants our top tier of teams that we will never take seriously, not because of how good they are on the court, field, ice, whatever it may be, but because of their branding. And he starts off with the Atlanta Hawks and Texas Rangers as his, obviously, I kind of like the Atlanta Hawks brand. I don't know what, I don't know what he's, what's he mad at, but the Texas Rangers, a thousand percent useless. Looks like, look, looks like a, a bad, you know, college realistically they've they've got it pretty poorly but um i've seen you have a couple names a couple uh interesting thoughts here give me give me them and, and tell me why what about these teams really just like throws you off a little bit yeah, well, first of all, absolutely love this question as well. You pointed it out, Donnie. This is a great one from Josh. Just texted me this one out of the blue and was like, this has to be a pod discussion. So love that we're back. And I got a comment as well. I'm with you on the Hawks. Josh is like, I don't know. Their logo is not great. Their colors kind of suck. I kind of like the black and red. I got no issue with the Atlanta Hawks. But he brings up the Texas Rangers, which is a funny one. He's like, I don't really like the teams that like their their like city isn't even like their city, like Texas. They're, you know, they're in Arlington, okay? Like the Carolina Panthers. Like Carolina isn't even a state. You know, there's two carolinas the golden state warriors okay you're just using the abbreviation uh of what your state is called even though you're really in san francisco now so i thought those were kind of funny shouts from josh but for me easy one at the top miami marlins i mean come on this team won two world series as the florida marlins and then decides you know what 
we're going to be the Miami Marlins. And we're going to play in a funny ballpark where no one will attend. And our color combination will just be like every color. And we'll just never know who, what jersey we're going to wear or what color we're going to be today. I just feel like the Miami Marlins are just completely lost on a branding front in a lot of ways. And, you know, they're, I feel like, you know, I'm just like, what's going on here with the Marlins? So that was an easy one. I knew I was picking them. New Orleans Pelicans. Okay. They used to be the New Orleans Hornets. And then the Charlotte Hornets were like, hey, we want our name back because we were the Bobcats and they sucked. So the Pelicans were like, all right, I guess we, you know, we can't be the Hornets anymore. So I guess we're going with the Pelicans. And it's like, what? I remember at first when that came out, I was like, how are you going to be the Pelicans on a basketball court? Like, what are we doing? Like, what? I, it just makes no sense to me. And I love Zion. Like, I hope Zion is great. But I just cannot take Pelicans seriously in terms of winning a championship. Like, what? No shot on the branding front with New Orleans Pelicans. And then my last one, you know, this is a little bit lighter one, but the San Jose Sharks, I'm just not a fan of the logo here. You know, I think there's a classic meme where it's like they're chomping on the stick and their logo and they're choking in the playoffs and that's all that they do. So it's like you're just inviting memes for your own branding. It's your own fault. So San Jose Sharks, you're trading Timo Meyer and we're criticizing that on the ice and we're also criticizing the logo and the branding off the ice. So there we go. My top three, my top tier for uh, for bad branding sports teams. I got the Marlins, the Pelicans, and the Sharks. Yeah, see, I just wanted to mention uh, spot on, obviously, with the Mar- the Marlins just in general. They're, they're just an off – They're just a, you can't take them seriously as an organization, period. If the branding doesn't look good, everything else in the organization is yeah. bad, too. It's they're just a lot to be here. Yeah. Yeah, there's, there was no chance that they weren't making it on that list for sure, so I appreciate that. I wanted to mention, first off, there's another hockey team in California that I think has worse branding. And it's the Anaheim Ducks. I think they have done such a horrible job from where they were back in, I guess it's like not even long, like a decade or two ago with even the last logo or obviously the Mighty Ducks logo was terrific. The branding was so perfect because obviously you could do so much with what they had. And then they went to absolute like trash pretty much. It's just a a boring, stupid-ish looking logo. Their jerseys are not super fun to look at either, which is really weird too. I don't necessarily understand what the thought process was there with, with the whole change. And it's really just like they went from having the best branding to the worst branding almost immediately. And it's crazy how they could do that because people literally looked at the organization. The only good thing about the organization the entire time has been the branding and, and how cool it was and everything. I think they're they're clearly like maybe the worst in sports. Um, but I, I wanted to mention the Houston Rockets, just the R logo. Their their court looks like ass. Their logo looks like ass. Their jerseys look like ass. The team looks like ass. It's just it's all bad. Everything's bad there. I definitely think you probably picked the best with the Miami Marlins because they have went so clearly downhill, but you have to think the Anna Ducks, the, the mighty Ducks of Anna, whatever you want to call them, it's really bad at this point. Yeah, they, they just had a, they've had a lot of iterations. Like they were the Mighty Ducks and now they're just the Ducks and everyone was kind of sad because we like the movie and like, I don't know. I don't know. They got, you know, even like mixing in the orange. Like it, it's kind of nice, but it's also a little weird. It's like, I don't know what's going on with the Ducks. Like it's tough because like branding, it's like you also have that Mighty Ducks. So you get a lot of fans of people that don't know anything about hockey other than they've seen a few Disney movies. So it's like, well, it's like, I don't know. I'm kind of conflicted on the Ducks one. I'm not going to lie. Yeah, I I personally am not a big fan. I don't I don't appreciate what they've done, and I think they've really uh they, they've really done a disservice to they hockey. They could do fans. more than what they do. Oh, they could certainly do more. I agree. 
Um, from here, we have another question. We have a question from Kirk, uh, something that has been very apparent since the Super Bowl, and I guess throughout the year, because I'm sure you heard it thousands of times with the Eagles doing this all the time. But it looks like the NFL is looking into banning the tush-push QB method at the goal line, fourth and inches play, almost a guaranteed yard, it felt like. Um, I, I would be very curious to see the Eagles' success stats on Jalen Hurts on fourth and inches or, or from the goal line. It feels like it was almost a guarantee with how the play works. And I guess the NFL is, is saying it's not the prettiest play to look at. It's pretty much what they're saying. Like it's not an aesthetically pleasing way to score or aesthetically pleasing way to solve a fourth and in inches. Like you'd kind of sort of want more motion and more, more, I guess the word here, pardon my French is fuckery. You want more fuckery out of the plays. So you have more, um, you know, Twitter plays, you can put a highlight up that goes, goes off, but just your thoughts in general. Can you, can you even like, why would, the, why is this such a, a serious issue for them? It's just a strategic advantage. Is it not? Yeah, it's, it's this is another really interesting one for me because I think that this was also just accelerated, you know, certainly by the Eagles and certainly by two players and specifically, and it's Jason Kels and it's Jalen Hurts. Jalen Kels, you know, Jason Kels, one of the best centers in the NFL. He's been that way since he's been in the NFL. It makes sense why a center is, you know, leading this dominant play that's just a one-yard rush pushing forward. And your quarterback, who everybody talks about how he can squat 600 pounds, like it's tough to tackle Jalen Hurts in the open field, let alone from one yard away. We saw Chris Jones like jump on him in the backfield in the Super Bowl and he still pushed ahead and picked it up so I, I think that it is definitely you know maybe over exaggerated a little bit with the timing of you know two guys in Kels and Hurts uh, and you know an Eagles Super Bowl appearance as well I also think though that this is probably just like a, not a safe play like screw the aesthetics like is it the safest thing to have guys just like mush into each other and try to just get like a yard and push the ball like I'm no player safety expert and neither is the NFL if we're really being honest but like 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 you know I I don't know. Like, like I get we're not all Andy Reid. We don't all have these fun shovel passes and getting the ball to Kelsey in the middle of the field somehow. But, like, I mean, I don't know. Like, it, it's tough because, like, it's just kind of been a fundamental play. You think back to, like, the, the ice bowl and Bart Starr's pushing ahead for a yard. Like, it's classic football. But it wasn't, you know, the tuck push here where you're getting a guy behind. So, you know, I'm, I'm kind of up in the air on it. Like, I, I could see it going either way. I think more so for me, it's an issue of player safety than it is aesthetics. Like if we're, if we're worried about aesthetics, like let it stay. I, you know, that, that can't be a reason we ban a play in my opinion, if it's player safety, that's another conversation. And I'd probably be on board with banning it, you know, for that reason. But uh, you know, yeah, we'll see. But yeah, like I said, I, I think this is really just a discussion because the Eagles were in the Super Bowl and they had two guys that were elite at it. So we just had to see it a lot. Yeah, I agree. I don't think it's that big of a deal. I would think it's a bigger deal if every team started doing it over and over. So every yeah. fourth and it just play was a, a somebody gets behind and just jams the quarterback forward because any quarterback realistically can do that kind of sort of obviously having Jalen Hurts, he's got a little bit more of the uh, the mentality. He kind of understands the, how to run the ball in the first place. Totally. So, um, but ju just in general, how how ridiculous they did. I just want to mention they did state the aesthetics of the play as one of the main the major reasons that was an NFL this is an NFL rule. This is an NFL saying that hey, so. if we're, if we're banning aesthetics, like Nathan Peterman should not be allowed in the NFL. <laughs> it's true. Like, come on, it's true. Ban backup quarterbacks, ban third string quarterbacks. You know, yeah. if, if the starters not playing games over, uh, yeah, yeah, I we definitely agree. Brock Purdy playing in the NFC title game, man. That's bad aesthetics, not the yeah, QB. I mean, that's for sure. That game in general was bad aesthetics. For my my eyes were not better off watching the three hours. It was of the most stress free game I have ever watched in my entire life. Yeah, you know, congratulations, <laughs> obviously, congratulations. All right, we have uh, Eric questions. I, I don't know if we're gonna get through all of them because it's been a long podcast, but I do want to start off. We we are teetering on the edge of March Madness here, which is it, another thing that just felt like it's come up so quickly out of nowhere on us. Um, and Eric wants to know what team we're most interested in for college basketball. I'm just going to say University of Miami, 
you know, we've we've been here. I've been talking to RK all year about UM. Obviously, they blew just a massive lead, and they were up fifty four to thirty one against Florida State, a, a nine and twenty Florida State team, and then blew a a twenty three point lead at half. But in a game, it doesn't really matter because Virginia ended up losing the same night, so they can win the ACC, the bye in the ACC tournament, which would be crazy. When when has Miami ever had the bye in the ACC tournament over a Duke or UNC or a Virginia? Um, but it's Miami versus Pitt this weekend for the ACC title, regular season title. So. I'm all in on UM basketball. I've watched a lot more UM regular season basketball than I, I thought I would. They had a lot of just like random veteran transfers. They had some guys from other schools. They've got guys from Kansas. They've got guys from other uh, major D1 schools in their starting lineup. Isaiah Wong has been an absolute pleasure to watch half the time. Another half the time, he misses every shot he takes. Nigel Pack as well. Very good. Jordan Miller's had a good year. Um, I think UM basketball, they're not going to win the title this year, but last year going into March Madness, I was saying, yo, watch out for UM basketball. This year, actually watch out for UM basketball because they, they have looked uh, pretty much, this is the best UM team I can remember seeing in my lifetime. And I've been watching uh, Miami sports since I can remember. It's been decades now. And, and so UM, we're all in this year. If they lose early on, I won't be surprised because it happens almost every year, but maybe a deep run out of Miami this year. They've got the roster for it and they got the coaching for it. Yeah, I like that. I'm I'm on board with you uh, this year as well with you on that, Donnie. But I I've watched you know uh, as much college basketball you know as as maybe I have in years past. But uh, I did this weekend watch the Purdue Indiana game uh, over the weekend, and Indiana actually looked pretty good in this one. Second win over Purdue, who's been one of the best teams in the Big Ten uh, this season for him. Jalen Hood, Shafino uh, was an unbelievable in this game. Like they were just playing like flawless execution on the offensive side. Trace Jackson Davis as well as kind of their star. They kind of have a big name. You know, you need that in uh, you know March madness time of year so i think indiana could kind of be an under radar team but really at the top uh of the of the crop i think kansas has stood out to me the most uh jalen wilson for them and grady dick amazing name and, and really good basketball player too kansas has been pretty fun to watch in, in some of the times i've seen him this year uh as well but uh tournament time is always a uh always a fun one yeah you know i kind of like the upsets as well the the unexpected is uh you know always something like you say you're watching a team and all of a sudden you're watching you know loyola chicago you know go on this crazy run so uh that's kind of the the unexpected that's fun with college basketball too but uh i'll shout out uh indiana for for a nice weekend and, and kansas for uh you know a, a team i think could make a deep run here yeah you know definitely i just want to add one extra team i, I think it's gonna be very interesting to watch the alabama college basketball team because they've had a, a, the most massive scandal you would have ever expected uh, you know a player was literally kicked off the team uh, as part of a, a a killing of a student and then there's a player on the team the star of the basketball team uh, gave the gun for this to happen and he's being like applauded running out to the court now like Alabama fans were, were giving him a like a, a, a stand up saying applause almost everybody was standing and clapping for this guy like yeah, he, maybe he doesn't deserve that but I, I think just in, in general it's an interesting storyline because I don't know how necessarily like how are you going to navigate that as a as a coach how are you going to navigate that as like even an announcer on Alabama game how do you go out there and say yeah you know Brandon Miller who just gave his gun into somebody that killed somebody three weeks ago is now he, he's got 27 tonight like that's there's just a, there's a little bit of a there's a conundrum a mental conundrum there's a moral conundrum in my brain and I'm not necessarily sure how to go about it yeah I, I don't think Nick Saban would be uh would be okay with that on the football side oh, but, Nick Saban uh, would be pissed Nick Saban would be would be screaming and yelling that that's not flying in Alabama football basketball eh. You know, they're good this year. Let them be. Guess apparently, so. apparently uh, we have other questions. Uh, just a quick, we need an in-depth breakdown of Will Levis. I, for one, uh, my, my breakdown, I, I, don't, I don't like it. I don't like it. It's not as fun as the, as the top guys. I've, I've looked in the quarterbacks a little bit just by, by virtue of being, you know, trying to be prepared. I don't, I don't like it, but you, you got, you got a different thought for me. What are you thinking? 
Uh, not really. I'm not a huge fan of Will Levis. You know, started his career at Penn State. Couldn't really, you know, consistently break through as the number one starter over Sean Clifford, who's, you know, had a very up and down college career himself. Goes to Kentucky. Has a solid, you know, little stretch there. You know, I, I didn't think he necessarily had kind of the breakthrough senior year that you're hoping to see, uh, you know, in a prospect like that. You know, could mean his, you know, value and, and ceiling is a little bit higher than maybe the value of, of what others think. I personally have him as the fourth best quarterback in this class after Bryce Young, CJ Shroud, and even Anthony Richardson, who I think has a much, much higher ceiling, even though he's much more raw of a prospect. You know, Levis offers you, you know, some solid arm strength, a little bit of mobility, even though that's an area I think regressed for him last season. And, uh, you know, I, I think a player that, you know, I've heard of is like, you know, you have a Josh Allen. He came in really raw out of Wyoming, needed a lot of development, but kind of had those raw traits where, you know, you knew he had some mobility, some arm strength uh, and, and some poise and, and ability too. you know, obviously he's turned into be one of the top quarterbacks in the NFL. I don't think the same King will be happening for Will Levis, but I was also not that high on Allen when he was coming out too. And that was also a quarterback class that had a couple other names to kind of keep your eye on. So could be a chance that Will Levis slides. Maybe that helps him out in terms of being able to get to a better team, a better opportunity if it's later in the draft. But overall, what I've seen from the prospect itself, not a player I would be really all that confident even in taking in, uh, you know, the first round uh, just because of what I think is a little bit limited, uh, you know, ceiling and upside. Yeah, I think that's a, as big of a, a you know, disagreement as you can get in some circles of the, the scouting world I feel like you obviously see some guys that have him as their number one quarterback and some guys that have him as five or six in the draft I've seen is, yeah, yeah crazy uh there's there's definitely I believe there's uh some ESPN analysts out there that say oh Will Levis is the best player ever so you know what we really have to see there um I, I'm not qualified to tell you that Will Levis is not the number one pick but I am qualified to tell you that it's probably not a good idea to pick a guy that just under underperformed pretty much his entire college career so Maybe just, you know, whoever's trading for the Chicago Bears pick, if Will Levis is the guy, you're 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 cruising for bruising here. Yeah, I mean, I, this just kind of feels like, you know, uh, you know, a couple years ago when we had like that year where Justin Fields was in the draft with, you know, Mac Jones and Trey Lance. And I'm like, man, why why is everybody overlooking Justin Fields? How is he falling? Like, seemed like other quarterbacks were kind of rising up. Uh, you know, I, I wonder if maybe that's the case for, you know, a guy like CJ Stroud or Anthony Richardson, if Will Levis goes ahead uh, of even Bryce Young, who, who I think is definitely the best quarterback, uh, you know, in this class in terms of, you know, what his ability really is rather than what our projection of what him can be. And that's even a big part of the draft. You got to draft guys on, on what you project they can be, too. So uh, it's definitely an interesting quarterback class. But Wallace, Will Levis is definitely not one of my top guys in the class. While we're here, just while we're on the topic, Todd McShay today said that he would be scared to death of drafting Bryce Young. Um, yeah. Weird. Just because he's a little bit like, like slightly. And I believe that he was listed at five, ten and a half or five somewhere around there, which is like. Doesn't seem like that big of a deal to me, but what do I know? Yeah, it, it's interesting too, because like you know, I I think you know ordinarily my reaction is this is dumb. Bryce Young is good. Stop it. He's a good quarterback. But like you know, I also have a little bit of respect. You know, obviously Todd Mache, you know, he knows what he's doing with the draft stuff. You know, he does a lot of prep every single year. He you know looks at a lot of stats. You know, statistically, you'd, you'd look at things and you'd say, all right, you know, if you're a quarterback and you're short, you know, it is an, a little bit of an uphill battle. That's just kind of an outright fact. You can, you can look at that and say, you know, you have a less of a chance to, to you know be a star, all pro caliber player you know if, if you're you know under six foot and, and Bryce Young certainly is uh you know in the case of a quarterback but there are outliers there are guys that can overcome that and I think Bryce Young has shown at Alabama that he can be that guy he's come up in big moments for him and even benefited you know obviously you benefit from a lot of talent at Alabama but I don't think what he experienced this year was you know among the best receiving cores that we've seen you know in years past obviously Alabama's receiving core has been better than a handful of NFL rosters I don't think that was necessarily the case this year uh as much as it's been in years past obviously Alabama 
Alabama. They lost two games this year, which for them is like, oh my gosh, the sky's falling. We lost two games, but they were nail biters and, and Bryce Young was a star all the way through. So I think what you see in his ability is much more than just his height. And I think that gives me a lot of confidence that he can be an outlier away from a lot of guys that, you know, need to have that height in order to succeed at the quarterback position in the NFL. Yeah, I definitely agree. It is interesting, too, because we have seen short quarterbacks have some success. Like, we're not calling Kyler Murray a bad quarterback. Kyler Murray is not a tall person. He's 5'10", no. I believe, and f- even 5'10 is a little bit of a stretch. And Russell Wilson is also uh, sub-six foot, uh, if I'm not mistaken. There, This is just off yeah. the top of my head. But uh, we've seen guys do it. Obviously, talent, you know, I think you tweeted something earlier. You're there hard over height. Something yeah, along this line. what it is. Bryce has got it. You know, there, there's more, you know, you, you got to have that human side too in scouting. Like, they, you know, you're trying to evaluate prospects and ceilings and all all this stuff. Like, there, there is a little bit of element of that. You know, I think back to Devontae Smith, for example, and I always thought it was crazy. I'm like, how is Devontae Smith the third best receiver, uh, you know, in, in his draft in terms of where he was drafted? This guy won the Heisman Trophy as a receiver. Like, this is a rare ability. And even though he's a little bit slim, he's a little bit small, you know, you, you take shots on those, you know, great, great football players. You know, what we've seen at, you know, SEC level cal- competition. I have a lot of confidence that Bryce Young is going to translate to the NFL. Uh, and, you know, there's no guarantees. You know, Tua has even been a little bit of a kind of a rough stretch. I, I would have totally said that Tua would have been, you know, a, a bona fide elite superstar by this point. Obviously, injuries have a lot to do with that, and that's too bad. But, um, you know, development isn't always linear, but I have a lot of confidence in Bryce Young, and, and he would, without a doubt, be the top quarterback I would have in this class. Yeah, I definitely agree. And I do think just like, you know, he's he's a half inch too short. Like, come on, guys, let's let's get over that. He can do uh, it. We have a couple more air questions. We can fly through this real quickly. Uh, he's asking for our favorite non-name brand NBA young star. So I'm going to call this anybody under 27. Uh, I, I'm going to say anybody he he mentions uh, excludes Luca, Giannis, and Tatum as the one word guys. My answer is Jalen Brunson solely because I do believe the New York Knicks are going to have a very, very strong. It's going to be very tough to out the New York Knicks in the playoffs. Jalen Brunson has been very, very good in terms of not only scoring himself, but setting up Julius Randle, who has had an incredible stretch here. Julius Randle is playing some of the best ball of his career, and that doesn't come without having a, a what I would call a, a very ball-dominant guard in Jalen Brunson. He's not just like a normal, uh, oh, yeah, I can play off ball, on ball. He's very, very good on the ball. He's very, very good at playmaking and making decisions. And we've seen Julius Randle last couple of games. Um, the other night against the Wizards, he put out like almost 50 points, a very easy 50 for him. He was shooting well, getting wide open looks. You love that. I think Jalen Brunson is almost underrated. And that's crazy to say in a New York market where like Knicks fans have been dying to have any sort of success. They're finally having it. And we still don't see it in like national media. And it's really like maybe a little bit interesting to me. But Jalen Brunson is my guy. Uh, in and out, no doubt. New Brunswick, New Jersey. I live 15, 20 minutes from, from Rutgers. So, you know, we're, we're shouting out the New Jersey kid who's, who's playing local. Jalen Brunson, you know, you're my guy. Yeah, I, I like that. Jalen Brunson went to Stevenson High School. So love that. Good shout for uh for Brunson there I'm gonna go I don't know if this is necessarily non-name brand because of his team but I think Jordan Poole anytime I watch the Warriors now and it's like oh Steph Curry's out or Clay Thompson's out you're like oh you know where where you know this is why I want to watch this team you're like Jordan Poole man this guy's like as good as them like he's he's getting to the rim he's finishing with you know dunks and layups athletically he's shooting threes he's creating offense off the dribble I think Jordan Poole like I did not see this kind of development for him you know we, we saw him at Michigan he hit a big game winner in March Madness and you're like okay that's pretty cool you know going to the Warriors all right good team you know you'll kind of back up some star guards but he's kind of turned into you know a a big part of that team a a big reason why you know they haven't necessarily had you know crazy crazy regular season success so far but I think Jordan Poole is uh is really developing into you know a really really fun player to watch 
Yeah, and people forget Jordan Poole went at the very back end of the first round in a draft where I think you could have been saying, oh, like this is a guy that, that could very well go like top 10, top 50. If they redrafted now, he would be a very easily like a top five, top six pick, which is crazy to say. Oh, yeah. um, and he's also just, I just want to mention, he's turned from a, a shooting guard, a guy that you would have expected to go out there, probably spot up, not as much of a point guard to a very efficient passer, which is interesting. He did play a little bit of ball dominant game at Michigan, but he's really turned into a guy that can like replace Steph Curry, as you mentioned, which is crazy. How do you, how do you go from having Steph Curry to Jordan Poole and not lose like a huge, huge, obviously you're losing three point shooting, but I think it's a really good shot. And I think people have really kind of slept on Jordan Poole. Like you get to the playoffs again, the Warriors in the playoffs, you don't want to see them. There's no, no, not, not a single, not a single team that wants to see the Warriors in the playoffs. So I, I like that. I like that a lot. Yeah. Yeah, and, and you know the Warriors. At least I, you know, I like watching the Warriors. They're you know one of the top teams. You you know what you're gonna kind of get on a on a game in game out basis. So uh, anytime I got him on, Jordan Poole always seems to be balling and you know pulling up from deep, hitting crazy shots. So uh, I really liked what I've seen from him. Absolutely, we got a couple more from Eric. We can run through this real quickly. What's your favorite sports watching snack? What's the go to snack that you get uh, when you're getting ready for a Sunday for football or you getting ready for a big? I was gonna say a big Blackhawks game, but that doesn't really exist at this point. Uh, what, what's what's the go to? What's your favorite? You know, I, I don't know. I, I don't actually consider myself a huge snack guy in general, uh, but I'll give you chocolate-covered pretzels. That's just always, like, a classic. Like, you really just can't go wrong. Like, you're smiling if you're eating some chocolate-covered pretzels. Like, that's a that's a pretty solid snack. I'll, I'll go with that. Yeah, I definitely think I, I agree on that. I was hoping you were going to say something like, uh, you know, gummy bears, jelly beans, something like that. Yeah. I thought, thought gummy, bear, were... gummy bears is just my favorite snack. It's, it's an all-time snack. I don't snack. have to be watching sports, so... <laughs> Fair enough. Uh, I'm just going to go with the, the generic chips and salsa. I do think chips and salsa is about as, as, you know, you can you can use it for anything. You can bring chips and salsa to a funeral. You can bring chips and salsa to a party. Okay. You can you do it. <laughs> you do whatever you want with chips and salsa. I think yeah, it's your, your your cousin's funeral. Hey, you want some dip? <laughs> it's it's very versatile. All right. um, you know, it's, it's, there, it's there to make you smile in, in a in a bad time or there to make you smile in a good time. So I, I go with chips and salsa. I eat a lot of chips and salsa. I, I go through especially like Sunday, Sunday, 1 p.m., I'm going through like like a, at least a third of a bag of tortilla chips and at least a half of a salsa jar in most most case scenarios. Just my kind of like my my go to. I don't I don't know. It's it's really interesting because I, I wouldn't have initially said like years ago chips and salsa was not really my thing. But you know we we've grown. We we've we've nice. we've transcended our our past here. Like um, we have Eric. Eric wants to negotiate a trade between two NHL teams at trade deadline. I don't think that we really have that type of uh type of wherewithal in our brains right now. But I do think there is. I just want you to talk about the Pittsburgh Penguins. That's really what I'm here for. The rumor here is that the Pittsburgh Penguins really want Jacob Chikrin from a coaching side. Coaching side. Mike Sullivan really wants Jacob Chikrin, but their their front office cannot do it. Is there even like a like a path there? Because my my thought process here, um, if you're not very aware of the Pittsburgh Penguins, Eric actually asked me yesterday. Eric's girlfriend is a Penguins fan, and she was saying they want Chikrin. So this is where I'm going with this. I think that has to be. It's got to start with Pierre Olivier Joseph, who's already on the team. Very, very interesting piece. Owen Pickering, and probably their top prospect, which is scary to say because, you know, there's not a whole lot outside of Owen Pickering on the roster. And the Penguins would have to move their next two first-round picks at least to get Jacob Chikrin. I think, realistically, that makes the Penguins a guaranteed playoff team. Just my thought process here. That would be my my little trade brokering there. But if you're the Arizona Coyotes, are you really excited about getting a, a deal like that for Jacob Chikrin, who has sat out for the last three weeks now? He's missed seven games. Yeah, it's a... Uh... Little odd, little odd for him and Gabrikov missed seven games. How it's like a tank, they're like they're like they're like screwing around, they're fucking yeah. around a little bit. 
Yeah, it's a little odd. I, I think Arizona, you know, I assume they're probably just more set on picks at this point. But I think if I was trading with Pittsburgh, like, yeah, obviously, you know, Pickering would be a, a pretty good uh, replacement, you know, in terms of some kind of a return. But, uh, you know, they're, they're, they're obviously the Coyotes still have a long way to go. And Pittsburgh, probably in a situation where it's more of like a mid mid first round pick, you know, I, I don't think they're going to go on any kind of serious run to the conference finals where, you know, they're picking 28, 29, something like that. So I think that that would be something of value if, if those teams were to, you know, get something done. I think that Pittsburgh could definitely use a, a little bit more help on the back end. I would like that fit uh, in Pittsburgh uh, if Chitron were to go there. But uh, even still, you know, it, do you want to kind of do that? Even though Chitron has some term, are the are the Penguins really in that right spot where you know that makes sense? It might. I definitely think that it's not necessarily the worst fit out there. But um, you know, I think there's probably also a reason why it has not happened yet. So um, you know, we'll have to see. Yeah, I definitely agree. And just one more extension off this: the Blackhawks. They're down to minimal assets left. Andres Athanasiu, guys like that, Max Domi. Is there any team that you think could really benefit from making a trade with the Blackhawks that a trade like maybe the Blackhawks could benefit off of working with another team that has either, I guess in the Blackhawks sense, you're kind of looking at the same ideas that Arizona Cody is like, ah, we, we're just looking for draft picks. Probably we're looking for capital. Although I do think, you know, for a guy like Domi or Athens you're probably not guaranteed a first round pick. So maybe getting a prospect is a little bit more exciting than getting a, a low second. Um, are there any teams that you think the Blackhawks could benefit trading with at this point? Yeah, one team that really stands out to me would be the Seattle Kraken. 100%. I think the Kraken have definitely overperformed uh, a little bit this year. Gone on a little bit of a tough stretch recently. I know they've lost three in a row, but I think when you overall look at the Kraken, you're, you know, you're looking at maybe another veteran forward, help out your depth a little bit more. Uh, you know, I don't I don't think they have as much depth down the middle and not like Athens or Domi would necessarily, you know, step in and be, you know, your number one center or anything like that. Domi may have some ability to do that, but I think the Kraken could be a team where it's like, yeah, we we'd like to, you know, bolster a little bit maybe be a little bit responsible in our buying, not necessarily shelling out the big first round picks. But um, I think that the Kraken could kind of fit that mold as a team that may be interested in a package of either Domi, Athens CU, or maybe even both. Yeah, I think that's fair. I had, uh, just to mention, doing some research to this, I had the Kraken and the Sabres as two teams that I thought would absolutely positively love to have Max Domi on their team. If Max Domi was playing on the third line with Middlestad and Cousins, you'd be sitting there like like rubbing your hands. You're a would be good. You know, and I think the Sabres obviously they have the assets to do it. So if we were if we were matchmaking, the Kraken and the Sabres would have been my my top ones there. Um I like that. Interesting. You know, obviously this was kind of just like an on the fly little thing, but I, I appreciate the thoughts there. Finally. Eric has one last question. It's really, really interesting. Um, his, his initial question was, do, do either of you party? To my answer was, Eric, you, you know, you know us already. We don't party. There's, there's no partying out of Arcana. Arcana are all business. There's, there's no party here. But Eric asked, would you party with Eric? Would you pick a random third party place and just go party with Eric? What does the ideal destination look like? This is his question. I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna cut it down. Would you party with Eric? Are you thinking about, are you thinking about getting, getting crunk with Eric? What are we thinking? I mean, to your point, you know, we're just boring guys. We don't do anything. But, you know, I'll say this, Eric. You know, I'll give you a pregame. You know, I'll give you a pregame. We can hang out at the pregame. You know, if it goes all right, you know, maybe we'll make a trip down, you know, go to go to some bars, you know, a little neutral site action. But, like, you know, a big commitment to, like, a big Saturday night. You know, we're getting there at, like, 7. We're eating food together. You know, I don't know. You know, we got to work our way there. You know, there, there's a lot of trust that needs to be earned in, you know, a face-to-face -face interaction before we get there. But I'll give you a pregame. I'll give you a pregame, Eric. I'll give you that. That's fair enough. Uh, does it change your mind at all that he texted 
Uh, Travis, 42 times the other night when he was at partying. Wait, would that bother you at all? Do you think that he's going to be sitting there on his phone or just spewing all of the entire time? Yeah, yeah. Drunk Eric is definitely a concern. You know, you, you really wonder about the, the, the quality of the evening after a few beverages are, you know, uh, consumed by Eric Jensen. That's a real, real concern, which is why I'm being very precautious with just the pregame here. You know, we, we can kind of play things by ear a little bit. But, yeah, it's a real concern. I won't lie, Donnie. Yeah, I definitely agree. I, I my answer would be no. I'm not parting with Eric. I've been to a, I've been to I've been to some sporting events with Eric. I've been to a hockey game. I've been to an Avs game. I've been to a, a Rockies game with Eric in my life. I've met Eric face to face. Um, yeah, it's a good experience. I don't know how I would be able to deal with him if he had any any you know if he was drinking or getting high, for example. I don't think it would go. It's risky. It's really seems, risky. It, it seems like there if if he was there was a list of like bottom five people I wouldn't want to party with. Wouldn't like, they don't even party. do that in Utah though. You know no, what I mean? I, I mean like, it's like, true. It's true. Maybe Eric. Eric doesn't know what a party is. His his parties are Kool Aid and uh and prayer circles. So we're really not sure about that. You know, obviously we love we love the Mormon people here. Eric, you know, uh, if, Eric, if you make it out here at, at some point, you're just like visiting or whatever you're traveling, and you want you want to hang out. I'm sure RK and I could figure it out. I don't know. We we could live in the same area, kind of sort of. So um, we'll we'll see there. But finally, you know. We have, a, we have a reserve spot. It's been a long podcast. We have a reserve spot for your sister, Kira. And we have a special guest from Kira. Um, do you want to you just you, you want to read it out for us? Yeah, let's finish this off here. So my sister, Kira, designated spot. She actually is very, very generous here. She's donating an honorary end of podcast question to her boyfriend, Phil, who wants us to give our top tier of trees. Phenomenal question. Absolutely love it. I'm going to share my answers before you, Donnie, on this one. Easy answer for me, number one, top tier trees. Got to go redwood, tallest tree in the forest. No question about it. I mean, they're just like, they're just growing. Those trees are growing. No no issues with redwoods. That's that's a lock to be in top tier. And also, my second answer for the top tier trees, I'm going with the Stanford tree. A little bit different kind of tree, but it's a mascot. And, you know, he's smiling. He's having a good time. You know, sometimes once in a while, you know, Stanford football or basketball, like, makes some nice things happen. And you're like, okay. Okay, there's the tree again, having a good time. Even though Stanford, their nickname is the Cardinal, not the Cardinals, the Cardinal, and their mascot is a tree. It's really weird, but I'm on board with it. You know, I kind of vibe with it. Some people make fun of the tree. I think he's just having a good time, you know, out there in, you know, the Bay Area, enjoying some nice, you know, Division One, Pac-12 action. I got no issue with the Stanford tree. So I got the Redwood tree, tallest tree in the forest, and the Stanford tree as my top tier of trees. Donnie, you're up. When I was researching this before I get my answer, did you know the Stanford tree was suspended this year for walking out with a sign that said Stanford hates fun after he was uh, he got oh, in trouble? Actually, yeah, no, this is familiar to me for sure. He, They're still he, making the list, though. That's okay. He was suspended. A mascot got suspended for months. That's kind of respect. That's kind of respect. Not every mascot's getting suspended. It's true. I definitely agree. Uh, my answer is I actually picked trees and not just a, a guy wearing a suit. Um, the cherry blossom tree, obviously, very pretty. The, the pink and white, you know, I, I don't think, like – you're not going to find them here in New Jersey probably, but I do think, you know, um, that's my literal number one, no other way around it. I, I definitely guarantee. And just my experience, my favorite trees to see in person. Uh, if you've never been to Yosemite national park, I'm sure that you ever been to Yosemite. I've not, not. I've not been there. You know, Yosemite is, if you're not much of a, uh, a, a wildlife person, you're not going to really, you're not going to take it much in, but Yosemite is gorgeous. It's lovely. And they have tremendous sequoia trees there who that are, like it almost reminds you of your your human capabilities and your characteristics and how small we really are because these trees grow to be uh, among the, the biggest and tallest in the world they are very very much the sequoias and the redwood trees in yosemite are 
crazy. They go hard. I mean, mostly sequoias, obviously, but um, you go to Redwood National Park, very, very pretty. Um, go to California if you're if you're a big tree person. You'll you'll find a lot, especially the more north you get, the more south you get, you'll run into nothingness. It's just deserts and stuff. But northern Northern California would be for you if you like trees. So Phil, Kira, whoever's whoever's asking this question, whoever's interested in the trees, uh, Northern California. From from somebody who used to live in Southern California, I'll tell you, great place to be. Love it, great answer. Absolutely. Um, obviously, Sheck West's favorite tree is uh, I don't know what was Sheck West's favorite tree. He's probably he's probably a big uh, he's probably a big Sequoia fan. He's probably he's probably one in nature. He goes to Yosemite to write write music every once in a while. You know, sits outside the, the beautiful trees around him. Um, but yes, Sheck West. Sheck West didn't want to, he didn't want to give out his answers to uh, making a trade. He, he wanted to leave it just me and me and RK. So he'll be on next week. Obviously, um, we, we've got a great plan to have him on. Uh, RK, you want to you want to close this out? Yeah, been a good pod. Shout out to all the uh, question askers. Definitely uh, improved the quality of this pod. So shout out to uh, the Roth Podcast listener army out there. Good people out there. We'll shout them out. Josh, Kirk, Eric, Kira, and Phil. Shout out. Good job, guys, for for asking questions. Fun podcast. Chatting about some NHL trades. Uh, a lot of our NHL trade deadline talks kind of been spread out. So for for podcasting sake, shout out to the NHL for for giving us a little bit of content here and there. But uh, might not necessarily mean the next week is all jam packed. But had quite a bit of action. A lot of moves. A lot of Eastern teams. You know, splurging big, trying to keep up. Kind of an arms race. It's going to make it a really fun finish to uh, NHL regular season. So excited to continue to follow that as we go along. But thank you guys all so much for listening. End of the podcast, folks. You guys are the best. We appreciate it so so much. And we will be back again next week. Peace, everybody. Peace. Life couldn't get better. This gonna be the best day.